If I could add my welcome to Richards. My name's Chris and I'm the pastor. And uh, we're going to be looking at this passage in Romans. You'll find it helpful to have it open in front of you uh, this morning. I wonder if this thought has ever gone through your head. If my place in heaven is secure by just trusting in Jesus' death, which is what we've seen so far in Romans, then why should I bother being good? If I'm... Sorry, the wrong thing's up on the screen. (laughs) Um, Why should I bother being good? If I'm saved by faith alone, then surely my behaviour is irrelevant. I can live whatever way I like. I can sin as much as I want. Or perhaps you've asked people looking into, or been asked by people looking into Christianity, are you really saying that you could become a Christian and murder someone and be forgiven because it's by faith alone? I know I've been asked that on more than one occasion. Or perhaps last time when we saw those two giants, which you just got a glimpse of before, um, we were talking about two giants, the giant of, of Jesus and the giant of Adam, and the fact we can be in one or the other. And what we said was what was important was who you were attached to. Uh, Whose belt, if you like, you were hung off, or who you were in. If that's what's important, then what's the point in being good? Surely being good is pointless then. Why even try? Well, let me encourage you, if you've ever had any of those thoughts, it would seem that you've grasped something that the Bible calls grace. You really have grasped that you're freely saved as a gift, despite what you have done, despite what we do as Christians. And it would seem, it would seem as Paul gives this talk, if you like, if you remember we said Romans is a bit like his generic gospel talk that he would give, it would seem at this point in the talk, this is the question that people have in their minds. That's what people are asking as we overhear this in Romans. And that's good news. Because that means you probably grasp what we've seen so far. This is the next logical question to come. The bad news is that it seems like we haven't grasped what happens to someone when they become a Christian. So what happens when you're transferred from giant Adam to giant Christ? When we put our trust in Jesus and attach to him by faith? What Paul is going to say is that our identity in Christ excludes those possibilities. That's what we're going to see. But it does tell us, though, that in the end, as human beings, we're always looking for excuses to sin. You're going to see that all the way through this passage. We're like sin junkies looking for the next hit, and we'll jump at anything that allows us to sin. So much so that when Paul explains that God is glorified by defeating sin, that's what we saw towards the end of last week, the question comes back, well, does that mean we should sin then so that he looks better? When Paul explains that we're under grace, the question comes back, Does that mean that we can get away with sin then? And those questions expose our hearts a little bit, don't we? But we do ask them. Some people ask them to discredit Christianity. How can you possibly believe in the gospel if it seems here to promote sin? So let's see how Paul answers this question. And we'll find uh, answers for ourselves if we're asking those questions, and answers for others uh, who are asking them. So firstly... Should I sin? No, because we are deceased. That's what we see in verses 1 to 8 of our passage. You see the question there in verse 1? What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The question here seems to be, from what he's just said, 
if sin leads to forgiveness, and forgiveness glorifies God, then surely we should sin more. If God is glorified as the great forgiver of sin, then surely we should try to give God more, to forgive, if you like, in our lives. We should give him more so that he looks better. And it's not quite as daft as it seems, in a way. It follows the logic of what Paul has just said. And down through the ages, there have been Christian, if you're listening online and putting scare quotes there, Christian groups down through the ages who have gone down this garden path. So, for example, the Russian monk, Rasputin, of Boney M fame, uh, was not only a, a lover of the Russian queen and a cat that really was gone, he was also reputedly a member of a mystical sect of the Russian Orthodox Church called the Clists, who allegedly practiced all sorts of crazy sexual things and counseled people to sin. And the argument was, the bigger the sin, the bigger the repentance, the easier repentance is, and the more glory that God gets. So, hence him trying to encourage women to help him become Russia's greatest love machine. I guess it puts it in the Bodie M song. But there are groups down through the ages who've gone down this path, who've followed this logic. Really, it's twisting theology as an excuse for sin. He wanted to do it, so he found a way to do it. But we can do that too. As we come to this passage, you must remember that we're not immune. Perhaps we're not quite as extreme as Rasputin, but we too can make our theology fit around what we really want to do, however sinful. I can think of churches where people are rude to people about things and wrap it up in theological terms. Well, I'm just speaking the truth. I can think of many churches in an effort to appeal to the world who suddenly discover that the Bible doesn't mean what it says about certain moral issues just at the same time that our society decides that they're morally okay. So now we honour God by celebrating those things rather than speaking out against them. I can think of one unmarried couple from years back who picked their church based on whether they'd be happy with them sleeping together as an unmarried couple. They found the theology to fit what they wanted to do. I can think of myself 20 years ago as a teenager conveniently understanding passages of the Bible that allowed me to sin while all the while believing I was honouring God with my moral decisions. The scary thing is, of course, that perhaps in another 20 years' time I'll think back to now And think along similar lines. But what does Paul say? Should we sin to glorify God, whether we conveniently decide it's sin or not? By no means, he says. God forbid. And Paul's answer is to do with our identity in Christ. In Christ, he says in the verses that follow, we are dead to sin. Paul here appeals to what we saw last time. We said that... As, uh, what happens to, to those two giants, if you like, as we're attached to them, what happens to them happens to all those who are attached to them. So if we're in Adam, we die. If we're in Christ, we live. We're hanging to them on, on their belts, if you like. Adam with hooks of biology and Christ with hooks of faith. Now, Paul takes that argument further here. He says, when Christ died, all attached to him died. When Christ died, we died. So as far as sin is concerned, he says, we are dead. Not metaphorically, but actually spiritually dead. 
Our old selves in Adam are, are dead. Now sin here is pictured as a force or a person who rules and reigns. A force that's so bad that the only option of escape is death. Imagine being held captive by someone so horrible, so awful yet so powerful that the only way out is death. But that's the picture that Paul wants us to have of sin. But Paul says we have died. We died with Christ. Paul says it over and over again. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, all talk about our death with Christ. When Christ died, we died. But we weren't there 2,000 years ago when Christ died, so how does that work? Well, we experience that death, so to speak, in our baptism. Do you see that there in verse 2? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, lots of ink has been spilled uh, about this over the years. But almost certainly what it's referring to here is our water baptism. Water baptism pictures that image of death as you go under and then new life as you come out. But it's not here saying that water baptism itself is what unites us to Christ. Don't get that wrong. As though it's some sort of magical rite. Paul is using it to talk about our conversion. The first time we turn from our sin and turn to Christ. For Paul read, Paul's readers, their baptism would have happened basically the same day that they became believers. It's a bit like the difference between the queen and commoners. The queen has a birthday and an official birthday. She gets two parties a year. Isn't that exciting? But most of us commoners, I imagine, just have one. So when someone says to us, do you remember your birthday party? We say, oh yeah, I remember my birthday, if we have birthday parties. The queen, though, gets confused. Remember my birthday? Which one? I've got two. One one date, one another date. And in that sense, we're a bit like the queen. We get confused, don't we? Because actually, our baptism date is probably different from the day that we became a Christian. But the people that Paul is writing to would know straight away that when he said their birthday party, so to speak, he means their actual birthday. He means when they became a Christian. So Paul is saying this is bound up with your identity as a Christian. This happened when you became a Christian. So he's saying, should a Christian want to sin on purpose... Well, no, a Christian by definition is someone who has died to sin. Because that happens when you become a Christian. And as Paul says in verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? But God's goal isn't to leave us dead. He raises us to new life as well. He doesn't just leave us dead to sin, but raises us to new life. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be, be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. He's saying here, it's more than just dying to sin 
that happened as you became a Christian. Actually, you were raised to new life. So the Christian life is not merely the negative, dying to sin, avoiding sin. You get that impression, don't you, sometimes, that the Christian life is just a series of thou shalt nots. But actually, we have more than that. We have a new life to live. Just as we lived to sin before, now we're to live to God. There is a positive. There is a new life in Christ. A life set free from the penalty of sin. A life where the power of sin has been defeated too. Not that Christians don't sin, but they're no longer under sin's tyranny as they were before. As John Wesley once put it, sin does remain, but it does not reign. Which is where Paul goes next. He's saying that there's more to this. Now we're going to move on to the next section. We're going to jump past the middle bit. We're going to come to the middle bit at the end. But there's another question comes up as Paul explains that we're not under sin's reign. And it's down there in verse 14. The next question is, can I sin? No, because we are released. Have a look at there, uh, there at uh, verses 14 and 15. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Do you notice here, the question changes subtly, but it's another, oh, can we sin question. Paul has made the point that we're no longer under sin's dominion. We're now under grace, not under law. Now, Paul's going to cover what that means in chapter 7, so unfortunately we have to leave that aside for now. But you can hear the heckler's ears pick up, can't you? We're not under law, we're under grace. Grace! That means we can sin. Great! Do you see how it's a subtly different question, though, to last time? Last time it was, should we sin to glorify God? Now that that's been beaten back, the question comes, but we can sin, right? We're allowed to. We've got permission to. Grace basically gives us a license to sin, right? Now, the first misunderstanding, you don't hear so much these days, do you? The should we sin? But this misunderstanding comes out all the time, doesn't it? Can we sin? Can we get away with it, if you like? It doesn't really matter. But Paul says, no, because we have been released. We have been freed from sin. And again, Paul's answer is to do with our identity in Christ. In Christ, we're freed from sin. Far from being freedom to sin, as the heckler wants it to be, the freedom that God gives us is freedom from sin. And Paul says here that if we present ourselves to sin as our master, then we become slaves to sin. We're putting ourselves under sin slavery. Jesus says much the same thing in John 8. You'll see that on the back of your notice sheets. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What it's saying here is that our natural condition in Adam is slavery to sin. But when we're transferred from Adam to Christ, when we put our trust in Jesus and become part of his people, we cease to be slaves to sin and instead become slaves to righteousness, to obedience, to God. Now, we really don't have slavery in the same way in our society, so to, so to speak, these days. But if you think about it, it's a bit like employment. There are only two bosses, two companies, if you like, that we can work for. We can either work for sin, 
or we can work for righteousness. One pays wages to their employees, the other one gives gifts to their servants. Now you might be tempted to think, well, the wage payer is better. Because we like that as human beings, don't we? The idea that we earn what we get. But this is actually, in a way, just part of our sinful streak. Stubbornly wanting to be independent of God. But look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we insist on our wages, the wages of sin is death. But God doesn't pay wages. He graciously gives gifts to those in Christ. Eternal life. He gives us the gift of eternal life. Our master gives us the greatest gifts ever. Not just that one though, there are other uh, gifts though as well, aren't there? There are other things that come from serving God. Slavery here leads to righteousness. Have a look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, the obedience here is almost certainly the obedience of faith that's mentioned in Romans 1. So Romans 1 verse 5, again, it's on the back of your notice sheets. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. It's also talking about becoming obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we are committed. That's what it says in verse 17. Notice here, it's not the teaching we received, but the teaching that received us. Notice that? So it's not saying you became obedient to what we gave you. It's you became obedient to what we gave you too. Which is nothing other than the gospel. That's what receives us, isn't it? So this is not saying obedience to a set of rules leads to life. It's saying that faith in Christ and his gospel leads to life. Given everything else that Paul has said in the letter, that's really the only option, isn't it? So the other gift there is righteousness. But this slavery as well leads to sanctification. Have a look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God... The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. What it's saying here is that the, the process this goes through, the same gospel that saves us, sanctifies us. It gradually makes us more like Jesus, if you want a sort of non-jargony term. Being attached to Christ's belt, so to speak, by faith, has an effect on those who are attached. We become more like the one we are attached to. So for that reason, sanctification, the process whereby we become more like Jesus, more holy, goes hand in hand with our salvation. We're not saved by becoming more holy, but those who are saved will become more holy. It's a gift, a benefit that comes with us being attached to Christ by faith that our gracious master gives to us. So slavery to Christ leads to righteousness, holiness and life. Sounds good, doesn't it? What about slavery to sin? Well, sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Paul says it three times there in verse 16, verse 23 and verse 21. 
Have a look at 21 just as an example. But when the, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Doesn't sound quite as good as slavery to Christ, does it? And it also leads to more sin and lawlessness. Have a look at verse 19. Second part. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. This picture here is, is like a dark and dingy spiral staircase that's leading you deeper and deeper down until you finally reach death at the bottom. Or a hole that we dig deeper and deeper until it becomes our grave. Sin is never the answer. It only ever makes things worse. The crazy thing is, though, that although we're attached to Christ, we often act like we're attached to Adam, don't we? Even though we're dead to sin, even though we're no longer slaves to sin, we still heed its call. We still get that shovel out, if you like. So how do we cope with this? How do we deal with this? And that brings us to our last point. How can I stop? Apply the spiritual truth to the physical reality. Have a look at verses 9 to 13. I'll read them to us again. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What it's saying here is that our spiritual reality has changed. But our brains and our bodies are not very good at catching up. We have a new status. We have a new boss. But we're not very good at applying that to our everyday life. Stuart Olliott, in his book, The Gospel As It Really Is, tells the story of a man who hates his boss, but has no way to leave his job. Another boss offers to take him on, but there's only one way to break his contract with his previous boss, and that is death. The new boss offers to make it work, a bit like the plan in Romeo and Juliet. The old boss is to find the man dead, except in this case he really will be dead. Or the plan goes ahead. The old boss looks for his employee and finds him dead. The new boss, sorry, the old boss declares his claim on him null and void. He's now a former employee. The new boss raises the man to life to serve him. And that's really what we've seen so far. That's the story that we've been told. But here's the thing. The old boss discovers the roots and starts ringing his former employee. I need you to go fetch something. I need you to write a report for me. I need you to collect somebody from the airport. And here's the crazy thing. The guy does it. The former employee still does it. Even though he has a new boss. He still does work for his old boss. That he hates. How crazy is that? But he's no crazier than what we do as Christians. We've been rescued from sin. 
We've died to sin. We've been released from sin. And yet we still go along with what sin wants. Even though we know the wages of sin is death, even though we know he was a horrible master, we still go along with sin. We're under no obligation anymore to him. We died to sin, we have a new master, and yet we still do it. So what do we need to do? How do we get out of this? We apply the spiritual truth to the physical reality. Or, as Paul puts it in verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are, we really are dead to sin. So we need to count ourselves dead to sin. We need to teach our brains to catch up with the spiritual reality. The problem is that A, we're prone to forget. We forget that this is our new status. We forget that we're no longer under obligation to sin. And B, we're prone to disbelieve it deep down. We think in our heads sometimes that sin is still our master. We think that we're still enslaved to sin. Now don't hear me wrong. As I said before, we do still sin as Christians. But we're no longer slaves to sin as we were before. We no longer have to in the way that we were obliged to before. But it's not just our brains that need to catch up. It's actually our bodies too. Have a look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What it's saying is that sin's reign is over. We have a new ruler. So why would we let sin reign in our bodies? It doesn't make any sense. Whereas sin used to reign in our bodies, it shouldn't anymore. So Paul uses this priestly language to get his idea across. He says it's a bit like we're priests offering sacrifices on an altar, presenting them. He'll come back to this language in chapter 12. But what we're offering here is not lambs and goats and things like that. We're offering parts of our body, our arms, our legs, our feet, our eyes. We used to offer them as instruments for unrighteousness. Paul's already made this point. Romans 3, 13 to 18. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. They have no peace. Uh, and, sorry, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what we used to be like, offering parts of our body to unrighteousness. Well, we're now to take those parts of our body and offer them instead to God as instruments of righteousness. Our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths, our feet, our eyes. Throats that were graves are now to speak words of life. Tongues that deceived are now to speak truth. Feet that were swift to shed blood are now to be the beautiful feet that bring good news. So getting really practical here, think about times that you have sinned. Speaking words that harmed. Looking at things that you shouldn't have done. Going places where you shouldn't have been. Think about how instead now you can offer those parts of your body for righteousness instead. Don't leave a vacuum, just be dead to sin, but... Think of the new life that's raised. 
He's sort of inviting us to play a serious version of Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes. I'd completely forgotten that song until I had children and you suddenly learn it again. But think about it. Heads that were offered to futility, now to be offered for thinking God's thoughts after him in the Bible. Shoulders that shrugged with indifference at the plight of the poor and needy, now to shoulder their burdens. Knees that quaked in fear and worry about the future, now to be used as we kneel in prayer before the Father. Toes. We'll see if you can think of anything afterwards about toes. <laughs> but you get the idea. He's wanting us to think through how we use our bodies. Offer them instead to righteousness. Not just part of us, but the whole of us. Our heart, mind, soul and body. So it's not just our souls that belong to God. Our bodies belong to God. Our minds belong to God. It's no good just offering part of ourselves. We need to think about the whole of us. God has rescued us whole. And one day our bodies will be free from the influence of sin. But that's when we're in glory. But until then, we're to live in line with what God has made us in Christ. The identity that he has given us. Dead to sin. Freed from sin. Deceased and released. So the next time your brain tells you that you're to sin, the next time your old boss calls you up, you're to tell him, no, I don't work for you anymore. I don't want to work for you anymore. I'm a new person. I've died. And I'm a new person, released from sin. So coming back to that question that we started with, if my place in heaven is secure by just trusting in Jesus' death, why should I bother being good? Because that is who God made you to be. Jesus died so that you would die along with him to sin. Jesus died so that sin would no longer be your master. So it's not just a ticket to heaven that we get. Jesus died to turn our lives upside down. He died to change our lives forever, starting now in this life, here on earth. He didn't just die to save us from the penalty of sin in the future. He died to save us from the power of sin now. And if we don't grasp that, then we haven't grasped just how big the cross is. Jesus' death has meaning now in this life, not just in the next. We are deceased to sin now. We are released from sin's mastery now. And we need our heads to get with a program and bring our bodies into submission. So let's pray that God would give us the strength that we need to do this. Should we sin? No, because our identity as a Christian is that we're dead to sin. Can we sin? No, because our identity as a Christian is that we're released to sin. You can't do these things because of who Christ has made you to be in Christ. So let's pray that God would help us to do that this week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of salvation. Father, thank you that we don't work for it. Father, thank you that it's by grace. But Father, let us never use that grace as an excuse to sin. Father, pray that you would help us to say no to our old master. And remember that you have released us from sin. Father, that you have caused us to die with Christ, that we might die to sin. So, Father, help us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.